Getting to Nothing, a podcast dedicated to discovering the ways to access the endless possibilities of life when you choose to get out of your own way and create from nothing. I'm your host, Adiola Alau, thinker, entrepreneur, content creator, and storyteller. I welcome you to episode two. In today's podcast, we're going to deep dive into the word nothing, which will also help establish the context of the conversation. But this episode is essentially the foundation of every podcast on our journey moving forward. So what is nothing? By definition, nothing is not anything. No thing. And in the context of this podcast, getting to nothing, it's exactly that. Getting to a place where there is not anything getting to a place where there is no thing. Nothing is a destination. And though its literal meaning is non-existent, nothing is still a place for us to get to. Nothing is a clean slate, a starting point from where we will create. Now, what do we create? From nothing, we can create a possibility, a way of being. As human beings, we are always being something. It's in our nature. I remember a quote saying, human beings are the only being that has an issue with being. It's quite fascinating. If we sit in it for a second, right? Human beings are the only being that has an issue with being. And it sounds simplistic, but the depths of that concept are extremely complex in its layering. Essentially, we're the only being that struggles to be. In that simply... Being with what is, is a struggle. Notice how we create meaning through our language. Labeling people or things, we attach a meaning to something or someone as an illusion of control or to understand whatever that thing is. Yet the interesting thing with this way of being is that we are never truly with what that thing or person actually is. We just create a meaning or label, an identity, and tag it on and go about our lives without ever really experiencing what that thing or person has to truly offer. Can you already see how this way of being is limiting and how we limit our experiences with one another? Now, why do we do that? There is a psychological term, xenophobia, which is the fear of the unknown. Human beings fear what they don't know. And funny enough, even when you think you know, you still don't. Take people, for example. When someone is disappointed or offended someone else, they usually say something along the lines of, I thought I knew you. Or, you really surprised me. Which is funny because honestly, most of us don't even know who we are. We haven't even taken the time to get to know ourselves, yet somehow we believe we're specialists. We're keen experts when it comes to understanding other people. It's quite remarkable. But let's get back to that statement I made earlier about nothing being a place to get to. If our destination is nothing and the objective is to get to it, then where are you now? For example, take this moment to see where you are as you're listening to this podcast. What state are you in? And I don't mean like New York, L.A., Texas. I mean, what is your state of being? Who are you being? What is your experience of yourself right now? Are you excited about this podcast 
and what can come from it? Or are you skeptical because this feels all too familiar to another experience? Are you indifferent, unconcerned, uninterested? Dear God, I hope you're not, I hope you're not uninterested. But however you're experiencing this podcast, it is perfectly fine and it's perfectly valid. But whatever that experience is, that is your state of being. And you are the author and creator of your state of being. And we're constantly creating our experiences in life as we go. If there is one thing to always remember, it's that you create who you are. You create how you show up. You are the author of your life and your experiences. Okay, got it. So I'm the master of my fate. Copy. I'm the god over my destiny. Fantastic. Now, how the hell do I get to nothing? Well, not yet. <laughs> because we've, we barely scratched the surface. Most of us probably weren't even aware that we were creating our reality. We were creating who we are being. Some believe who they are being is molded by their environment or friends or parents or experiences or culture or any of the many outside forces, but it isn't. Who you're being and your experience of yourself are molded by you. Even if you're not aware of it, you're still creating your state of being. And this creating is a muscle. And you've been working it since day one. This is the muscle we're going to transform. When it comes to change or transformation, I'm a firm believer that before you begin any process, it is very important that you identify the source of what you want to transform. For example, if you have a leak in your basement, in order to successfully transform the state of your leaky basement, you must discover the source of the leak. The leak is the issue that you want to transform. If you were to just drain out the water, put in new carpeting, or remodel your basement in any capacity, but never address the source of the issue, you'll always end up with a leaky basement. We all know how people go through life dealing with the same issue. Though they've been through many different situations with work, friends, relationships, careers, they still end up with the same outcome. Thinking that a remask or a remodel or a relocation will affect the outcome, but in reality, they just never discovered the source of the issue. They never discovered the leak in the basement. But once you hear their story, you can immediately offer advice. Doesn't mean it's good advice, but you offer it because you've located the source of their issue. You discovered their leak. This is no different than watching a game of basketball on television. You can see the entire court and all the moving parts. And you see this point guard coming down the court on a fast break, no defender in sight, and they're about to roll in this easy layup. Now, what the point guard doesn't see is the 245-pound defender running directly behind them at full speed, eyes engaged, mouth salivating, ready to send that basketball straight through the backboard. And as a spectator, we have this insight, we have this wider perspective, this ability to identify the source of the point guard's issue because we're removed from the entire situation. We're at a distance, physically, emotionally, mentally. We're not equally invested as the point guard is. But when we are the point guard, dribbling down court on a fast break, basket straight ahead, no defender in sight, our perspective is quite different than the spectators. No? 
We have skin in the game. We have this mental and emotional stake. And it's until we go for that easy layup and we're quickly engulfed by a shadow that we ask that age-old question, how the fuck did I get here? But by that time, it's too late. Just buckle up and we'll see where it goes. And this happens in sports all the time, right? Players with tunnel vision, blindsided by a defender. Yet even with that being said, you still have your unique players, players that have this heightened awareness, or as some would say, this high basketball IQ, which refers to the ability to instinctively play the game and adapt to any situation that comes up. They know how to make the right play at the right time. And it is clearly a skill that many players don't instinctively have. But the players that have the skill are the ones who consistently perform at the highest level at crunch time. Like a Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan or Reggie Miller, LeBron James, Ray Allen, a Steph Curry. These are examples of players that have worked that muscle to gain this awareness to build their basketball IQ. Again, this is that same muscle that we will train to adapt to the situations that life presents us. So to quickly recap, we are always in a state of being. We are the creators of who we're being. And our destination of being is getting to nothing. Now, how do we get from where we are to our new destination? Like anything else, we need a vehicle, a way to transport ourselves from point A to point B. Do you have a vehicle? Of course you do. You're literally sitting in it right now. But I want you to know that there are three types of vehicles. And of the three, only one of them works. And the one that works gets you to nothing. Guess which vehicle you've been using? Correct, the other two. But before I tell you the vehicles, I'll give you an example to better understand. I'm an artist. I've always been an artist as far back as I could remember. By the time I was seven or eight years old, my favorite form of expression was drawing. I loved cartoons, I read comics, I watched a ton of anime, Dragon Ball Z, Escafloni, Outlaw Star. I was a well-rounded kid. And I developed a curiosity of drawing the world around me. Maybe that's even why I fell in love with film photography later in life, I don't know. But at that age, I was drawing fruits that my mother left on the kitchen counter. Like bananas, apples, oranges, grapes, stuff like that. And I also drew windows, like in our dining room, and the trees outside of them. And that's what you'd call still life. And I didn't know it at the time, but I still loved drawing the world around me. With the occasional Vegeta portrait. Again, I was seven years old. Let's not act like I'm not that guy, right? There was a day I was gripped by an idea. I thought it'd be brilliant if I moved the fruits from the kitchen counter and placed them on the dining room table and sketched the fruits with the window. I know, a modern day mother effing Caravaggio. And it gets better. The top corner of that sketch had a bird sitting on the windowsill, which was completely fabricated. But I thought that part was brilliant. And this was like my Sistine Chapel to say. I'm well into drawing, almost completed my masterpiece, and I heard my dad coming down the stairs. So this is like my, this was my time to shine. And I wanted to show him this piece, but deep down inside, I, I thought to myself, this piece is so fire that he's going to stop in his tracks. So I hear him getting closer and I start, 
you know, shaving even harder, you know, making sure he understands the depth of this image. Foreground, middle ground, background, don't test me, right? So, you know, my father enters the dining room and I look up briefly and I'm like, good morning, dad. And I go back to, I go back to shaving, you know, so he knows I'm, I'm currently occupied with, with something important. And obviously the thought process is he looks busy on what? Let me look, right? But when I tell you this man passed me like, like an overdue bill, right? This man passed me. And in passing me, he said, you always draw Dracula. Why don't you just read your book? Man, the wind was taken out of my sail. It was like a KO. And from that moment, I questioned my art, right? I questioned if my art was even good enough. I started asking myself, was I so drenched in denial of my ability to draw that I couldn't even realize how my bowl of fruit was a police sketchup of a vampire? Maybe it was the bird sitting on the windowsill. I don't know. But that experience followed me well into my adolescent years. I was still drawing, painting. I even got accepted into arts and design and LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and didn't go. But full disclosure, we moved from, my family moved from the South Bronx to Westchester at the time. But still at that age, I was like, I was being sabotaged, right? This was a coup on my art. And I started believing that art was not a serious profession. And slowly I stopped drawing, painting, expressing myself artistically. Then junior year in high school came and it was time to start thinking about college. And I said to myself, what is a serious profession that would make my parents proud, that would allow them to sit and dine amongst their most affluent Nigerian colleagues and say, <clears throat> my son Diola is a lawyer. And, and because he's a lawyer, it is proof. God loves me. Right? <laughs> And around that time, I remember I remembered watching a film that blew me away titled To Kill a Mockingbird. And I mean, I just fell in love with the protagonist, Atticus Fitch. Righteous, wise, fighting on the side of humanity. Before that film reached the end credits, I said to myself, I'm going to be a lawyer. Senior year came. In high school, I took constitutional law. I slaughtered mock trials. The courtroom was my stage. I loved speaking in court, rebuttaling, using sound evidence to back me up, making closing arguments to seal my victories. I was like Atticus Fitch. And I told my parents that I was going to be a lawyer. And they lit up. Word got around church and the congregation stopped calling me by my name. They just started calling me lawyer. Which, which is like a Nigerian thing. They rename you by your profession. Doctor, professor, engineer, lawyer. You know, it, it just literally becomes your new name. And for the first time, I felt no pressure. My parents were bragging. Church members weren't harassing me. Like, what are you doing next? Like, yo, this was the life. I eventually went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice where I further drenched myself in law, learning the depths of the system and also preparing for the LSAT. And that senior year, it clicked for me. If I pursue this profession in law, I'm going to be fucking miserable. And it wasn't law I was in love with this whole time. It was the power of storytelling. 
It was a power that that film had over me. I was so moved by the narrative. I was so moved by Atticus Fitch that I wanted to be him. It's that same feeling you get like after you you leave the theater and you watched a great film. By the time you exit the doors, like your life has already aligned with the main characters. <laughs> like even your walk is different. That's what that was for me. I had what I like to call the talk with my parents. And it obviously didn't go as smoothly as I hoped. But during the conversation, I noticed something. I noticed how conflicted I was. On one side, there was this disappointment and guilt in letting my parents down. And on the other side, this feeling, like this certainty that I have never been so right about anything in my life. It was obvious that my parents had a different perspective than I did. They weren't concerned with whether I loved the profession or not. For them, it was a solid, safe, and secure direction. Especially seeing how I devoted my later years in high school and all of college to it. To them, not pursuing law just meant I wasted time. But for me, I simply found the source and fell in love. This was when I came to the realization that this entire time, I was using two of the three vehicles. Can you determine what they are now? Of course you can't. Who could? I didn't. It all just seemed like a natural interaction between a parent and their kid trying to discover who they are or who they want to be. All right. I'm currently 35 years old, and I can still visualize the event that took place in the dining room of the house I grew up in in the South Bronx when I was seven. And I can vividly describe it as if it were yesterday. That event is as real to me as a microphone I'm speaking into. And throughout most of my life, I use that experience as a reference, as a pair of glasses to view myself in the world. Since then, I've won awards as a screenplay writer, I've had music videos on BET, projects nominated at award shows, short films winning at festivals. I've been lucky enough to work with Academy-nominated and Academy Award-winning actors in the film industry. I've had my work published in magazines, yet I haven't shared not one of these achievements with my father. And it's not out of spite. It's out of me believing that my work was not good enough. And my art isn't a serious profession. These were the thoughts of a seven-year-old leading before me this whole time. This vehicle is that of the past. The vehicle of the past is when an event which no longer exists stands in between you and the interaction you're about to have with someone or something. You can think of this as a filter. Everything you say, do, or hear is through this filter of the past. But it isn't through the event that occurred in the past. It's through the meaning. Remember how I said earlier we create labels and meaning and attach them to things? It's through the meaning that you create from the event in which you're listening through. That meaning becomes a filter. This doesn't mean you have to forget the past, right? That's like virtually impossible. But using a past experience as a reference to filter a new one will inevitably limit what the new experience has to offer. Have you ever shared a new experience with someone and they continuously reference what you're sharing to something else they've experienced in the past? Like, oh yeah, that's like X. Or, oh, I know, I know, it's exactly like that thing I did, Y. No, it isn't. 
It's something that person hasn't experienced. But because they already think they know everything you have to say, there isn't much you feel you can share. Their filter of the past has limited this entire experience. And honestly, even if you know what was going to be said, there's a way you can still listen in order to expand your experience. But that's a whole other podcast about the power of listening. Now, while I was in high school, I was worried about what was next. What will my parents and the people around me think? Being that I was under the impression that art wasn't a serious profession, I thought to myself, what can I do to be taken seriously? What direction should I move in? That's when I decided to take the route of becoming a lawyer. That was the vehicle of the future. This filter is based on fear, worrying about what hasn't even happened yet, as if it's a certainty. We create meaning in what it says about us to other people or what will happen to us if we don't act now. Yet similar to the past, the future also doesn't exist. This is when something clicked. Something gave way. I noticed my experience of myself. I felt as if I was being pulled over there and over there, but never here. I was either reacting from a past experience or making decisions out of fear of the future. Then it hit me. I am only me and no one else. And the path I choose in life is mine and mine alone. This realization gave me freedom, clarity, one I hadn't experienced in a long time. I hadn't felt this free as free as I felt when I was seven years old, drawing in the dining room in my house in the South Bronx. And for the first time in a long time, I got to nothing. And the vehicle I used to get there was that of the present. The present is the most powerful of the three vehicles, yet it's the only vehicle that doesn't travel because it's already where it needs to be in the only time that exists, now. And you are already at your destination, which is nothing. Getting to nothing is the ability to remove the meaning you create of the past and the future, leaving you with an empty space in the present without filters, with no meaning, with nothing. This is the beginning of our journey the start to accessing endless possibilities and creating new worlds from anything you've ever experienced. Welcome to Getting to Nothing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me on this episode. Please follow the Getting to Nothing podcast so you always have the latest show downloaded. If you want to follow me on social media, my Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube account is at Adiola Allow. That is at A-D-E-O-L-A-A-L-A-O. And for my rapidly growing TikTok, follow me at adiola.allow. That is at A-D-E-O-L-A dot A-L-A-O. Have a powerful rest of your day and I'll catch you on the next episode.